The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In this episode series, our goal is to fully equip ourselves with a complete historical and cultural understanding of Jesus' I Am statements as revealed within God's Word, the Bible. While the subject matter may not be completely new ground, I have an abiding faith that any time we approach God's Word, with a sincere and earnest desire to learn, we cannot help and will not fail to deepen a greater understanding and appreciation of God's nature and deity from a diligent Berean study of His Word, the Bible. In the previous four episodes, we began a journey to deepen our understanding of Jesus' I Am statements found within the New Testament. It is my contention that these various statements, when viewed properly, clearly draw a straight line identifying Jesus' divinity 
and recognition as the God of the Bible, the God of all creation, the Lord of life, and the King of kings. In episode 1 and 2, we completed a search of Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15, along with a survey of the Old Testament in Hebrew, as well as the Septuagint Greek regarding God's revelation to Moses, and by extension to his people, of God's character or name. In part three, we began our survey in earnest with a study of Matthew chapter 26, Mark chapter 14, and Luke chapter 22 regarding Jesus's I am statements under oath to the high priest during his trial. In part four, we looked at Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well in John chapter four. In part five, we began to look at Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 and his walking on the water of the Sea of Galilee. In part six, we continued to examine John chapter six, where Jesus and his disciples land at Capernaum where Jesus repeatedly says, I am the bread of life. Now, thus far in this series, we have focused on the topic, which is Jesus's I am statements, which demonstrate his divinity. We will continue to explore these statements. However, it must be recognized that there is so much more of Jesus' behavior and statements which reveal his messianic identity as well as his deity. Many times these statements and behavior escape us because Jesus' actions rely upon cultural or historical references which are unique to the Jewish mindset and understanding. As has been our contention in previous episodes, God communicates throughout his word using types, shadows, allegories, and parables in order to give greater and deeper theological truths pointing towards eternal realities. Ultimately, these types and shadows find their substance in the person, nature, and character of Jesus who is God. Consequently, as we study Jesus' statements and actions, I believe it will be a blessing to take several detours to stop and look at several instances where the circumstances of Jesus' statements reveal the substance of those types and shadows which God himself has created. In this episode, we turn our attention to John chapter 7. Beginning in verses 1 and 2, we read, quote, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, unquote. Of course, the, quote, after these things, unquote, are all the events which transpired in chapter 6, which we discussed previously in part 5 and 6. In terms of timing, 
the important thing we recall was that chapter 6 occurred around the time of the Passover. The Passover occurs during the Jewish month of Nisan on the 14th and 15th, which would be March or April. The Feast of Tabernacles, or Sukkot, uh, occurs in the Jewish month of Tishri, beginning on the 15th, and goes for seven days until the 22nd, which is the month of September. So, all in all, the, quote, after these things, unquote, means that about five to six months has passed from John 6 to John 7. Insofar as the Feast of Tabernacles was concerned, this feast was commanded by God in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 34 through 44. During these seven days, God's people were supposed to live in booths or small makeshift tent-like structures. For the most part, the feast was intended to remind Israel of their departure from Egypt and their status as pilgrims who wandered in the wilderness en route to their eventual home, the Promised Land, which is the type of heaven. Then, starting in verse 3 to verse 10, Jesus' brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, have a conversation with Jesus, saying, quote, Depart hence, and go into Judea, that thy disciples may see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. Then Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, and the works thereof are evil. Go ye up unto this feast, I go not yet unto this feast, for my time is not yet come. When he had said these words unto them, he abode still in Galilee. But when his brethren were gone up, then he went also up unto the feast, not openly, but as, as it were, in secret." Unquote. These verses create the inference that Jesus was doing some kind of miracles, or at least amazing things which were restricted to his immediate family. Thus, Jesus' brothers suggest, perhaps derisively, to show his quote-unquote works to the world and to his disciples, since Jesus' brethren did not believe in him. Jesus therefore sends his brothers to the Feast of Tabernacles without him, because the timing is wrong for Jesus to reveal himself. Eventually, Jesus does go to the Feast of Tabernacles, but he goes in secret. In verses 11 through 14, Jesus' presence at the feast becomes known. Quote, then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much murmuring among the people concerning him, for some said, He is a good man. 
Others said, Nay, but he deceiveth the people. Howbeit no man spake openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught, unquote. In verse 15, we read, quote, And the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters, having never learned? Unquote. Now, in this case, the word, quote-unquote, letters, is used in the context of Jesus' understanding and mastery of the Jewish scriptures. Clearly, Jesus had a level of understanding that rivaled and exceeded that of someone who had been formally educated by a master rabbi. It is also apparent that either these Jews knew Jesus or they knew all those who were being formally taught. In either case, the Jews had enough knowledge to know that Jesus' knowledge was a mystery since in their understanding there was no natural explanation for his knowledge. Throughout verses 16 through 36, Jesus and the Jews continued their debate over the Sabbath, the Messiah, and over Jesus' identity. Now, remember, all of the discussion activities here in John 7 has been going on during the seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles had been a celebration going on for many hundreds of years since God first delivered his instructions to Moses. Over time, many particular and distinctive customs were added to the celebration. Because God required his people to make sacrifices during the Feast of Tabernacles, many people were be, would be gathered in and around the temple in Jerusalem in their required tabernacle during this period. The temple would have been a very busy and crowded place, and hence the perfect environment for Jesus to teach. Now, one of the customs associated with the Feast of Tabernacles was that during this feast, on each of the first seven days of the feast in Jerusalem, the temple priests were divided into three divisions. One division for the altar, one for the willows, and one for the waters. The first division for the altar would slay the necessary sacrifices found in Numbers chapter 29. The second group of priests exited the eastern gate of the temple to the Mutzat Valley, where the ashes of the red heifer were dumped at the beginning of the Sabbath. There they cut willows 25 feet in length and form a line with all the priests holding a willow. Behind this row would be another row of priests also holding willows. Meanwhile, the third group of priests would go down to the pool of Siloam with large water jugs. Once there at the pool of Siloam, they would fill the water jugs and come up the many steps to the temple mount, commemorating the long-expected anticipation of promises given through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 44, verse 3, quote, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your seed, and my blessing upon your offspring, unquote. 
Also, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, quote, And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, though thou wast angry with me. Thy anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust, I not be afraid, for the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also is become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw waters out of the wells of salvation, unquote. Here, one can see that on the surface that both of these verses are merely talking about drawing and or pouring out water as an analogy to God pouring out his spirit upon his people. On the other hand, if we look with discernment and view these passages as prophecies, types, and shadows, then it is clear that Isaiah is talking about the Messiah, Jesus, who is that water and who is our salvation. Hence, as with so many other things, the Jews were knowingly or unknowingly celebrating the coming as well as the accomplishments of Christ during the Feast of Tabernacles. Returning to the customs of the Jewish people during the Feast of Tabernacles, we see that as the priests approached with the water jugs, the people would burst forth in singing psalms such as Psalms 113 through 118. As the people were praising the Lord, the priests would pour out these water jugs upon the pavement, and as the water poured, they were reminded of how God miraculously provided water in the wilderness out of the rock, and will also one day pour water from heaven on their thirsty souls through the Messiah. One cannot help here but recall that the rock is also a type of Christ. The fact that the rock which Moses struck at Horeb and received water in Exodus chapter 17 verse 6 and Numbers chapter 20 verse 11 is Christ is verified by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 which says, quote, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did eat the same spiritual meat, and did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ." Unquote. This particular cultural Jewish custom of drawing water from the Pool of Siloam during the Feast of Tabernacles is called the Water Drawing Celebration, or the Water Libation Ceremony, which in Hebrew is called Simchat Beit Hashovah, literally Simchat meaning rejoicing, Beit meaning the place of, and Hashovah meaning water drawing. So, for a moment, visualize or imagine yourself looking at the city of Jerusalem, which is a city on a hill. You are there during the Feast of Tabernacles on this last seventh day, 
at about three o'clock in the afternoon. The entire road leading to the temple is lined with pilgrims celebrating the festival as they were commanded by God to do so. There would be a signal and the willow priests would step out with their left foot and then step to the right in cadence, swinging the willows back and forth. The willows would make a swishing sound in the wind as they approached the city. The sound of the willows swishing in the wind is symbolic of the Holy Spirit of God coming upon the city of Jerusalem. The third set of priests fill a golden pitcher from the pool of Siloam which he carries with the water from the pool. A procession of worshipers, flutists, and joyful singers sing and play music as the choir of Israelites chants Psalm 118. Once filled, this group heads back to the temple through the water gate. As each of the party reach their respective gates, the shofar trumpet is blown. Then one man would stand up and play the flute. The flute, which is called the quote-unquote pierced one, has five holes in it and is understood to represent the Messiah. The flute player is called the quote pierced one, unquote. The fact that this flute has five holes pierced in it and is called the quote-unquote pierced one is an amazing parallel since Jesus who was the Messiah, was pierced in five places, i.e. two hands, two feet, and one in his side during his crucifixion. Continuing, the shofar trumpet sounds as the priest enters the temple with thousands of people jammed into the temple courts. Once inside, he is handed a silver pitcher full of wine. The shofar trumpet was blown, and the pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the feast hold and or wave palm branches, myrtle branches, and willow branches tied together called lulav in their right hand. They also hold what's called an ektrog, which is a variety of citrus fruit which represents the Gentiles or non-Jewish believers. These four are brought into the temple, representing the ingathering of the nations into his barn. Five willow branches are beaten on the ground until the leaves fall off, symbolizing the elimination of sin. The priests who had the willows started laying the willows against the altar, forming a wedding canopy or chuppah, which is a picture of the body of Christ. The priest approaches the altar where the two silver basins are waiting. A series of scripture verses are read expressing hope for the speedy coming of the Messiah. The procession circles the altar seven times remembering the walls of Jericho which fell after seven circuits because of God's great power. When the ceremony rite reaches its climax, there are three blasts on the shofar trumpets. Hundreds of people and priests chant, quote, Hosanna, 
deliver us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, unquote. The priest raises the water and wine pitchers. Silence falls on the crowd. Then he pours the water and the wine out together, and he prays on this day for two things. First, for the rains, the former and the latter rains, for the natural harvest. Then he prays, quote, God in heaven, send your Messiah soon and in our days. We cry out for our Messiah now, unquote. Now, if we combine what we know of this cultural observation with the narrative of John 7, we can draw the conclusion and further imagine that perhaps the high priest and the people have just finished chanting, quote, Hosanna, deliver us, save us, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, unquote. We can further imagine that the high priest has just finished pouring the water and the wine and silence falls. We can imagine the high priest has just finished praying, quote, God in heaven, send your Messiah soon, and in our days we cry out for our Messiah now, unquote. Perhaps just as the last sound of the priest praying has ended, and there is a pause before those present gradually leave, exhausted to dismantle their booths before journeying home. In this moment of silence, it may just be possible that that is where we read and imagine the events portrayed in John chapter 7, verse 37, where it says, quote, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink, unquote. If so, there is no way we can read this in context and not see that Jesus is connecting and equating himself as the substance of the types and shadows which he himself created. Jesus is here on time as the clock strikes high noon, making and completing a very long-awaited appointment to decisively identify himself as the Messiah, as the Savior of mankind as the only water which truly satisfies the spiritual thir spiritually thirsty. So effectively, several hundred years of waiting for this prophecy of deliverance has just been satisfied. In verse 38, Jesus continues in the silence saying, quote, he that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water, unquote. 
Once again, Jesus reveals the substance and meaning of the water drawing celebration. In short, this type is the substance of the gospel veiled in the drama of a cultural play. Those who are drawn by God to having a saving faith in the finished work of Jesus will have the Holy Spirit, the new nature implanted within them. This new nature is the power of God, which, like living water, flows to give us victory over our old nature, sin, and the gift of God, which by his grace is life eternal. The Holy Spirit confirms this interpretation in verse 39, saying, quote, But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified, unquote. Jesus' comments and the allusions to which he referred were not entirely missed by those present. In verse 40 through 43, we read, quote, Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David, and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him, unquote. Here again, the mention to, quote, the prophet, unquote, is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses gives prophecies saying, quote, the Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me, unto him ye shall hearken, unquote. As before, the prophet in question is synonymous to the Messiah, which they had just been praying for. The fact that some said, quote, this is the Christ, unquote, i.e. the anointed one, meant that some did believe Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, or at least they were seriously considering it. At the same time, there was confusion because some assumed that Jesus had been born in Galilee, when in fact the Messiah, if that was who Jesus claimed to be, was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Verse 44 through 49 continues, quote, And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees and said unto them, why have ye not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered them the Pharisees, Are ye also deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Unquote. In this case, there were some present who were generally predisposed to detain or arrest Jesus and deliver him to the Pharisees on some religious violation. When the Pharisees heard the account of this, they questioned their supposed supporters, 
asking why they had in fact not brought Jesus to them. The undeniable answer was that they had never heard anyone speak or teach the same way as Jesus. Jesus' teaching and statements removed him from the category of mere man and into the office of Messiah. This is why the Pharisees accused their supporters of being deceived. The Pharisees then go on to boastfully make the claim that allegedly none of the Pharisees had been deceived into believing Jesus' claims of Messiahship. In addition, the Pharisees arrogantly state that those being quote-unquote deceived are deceived and cursed as a result of lacking the knowledge of the law which the Pharisees allegedly possessed. Despite the Pharisees' belief, we are told the following in verses 50 through 53, which end this narrative. Quote, Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet, and every man went unto his house." Unquote. Contrary to the Pharisee's statement, Nicodemus, who was in fact a Pharisee and one of the Sanhedrin, did believe Jesus and was one of Jesus' secret followers. Nicodemus attempts to remind his fellow Pharisees that since they are such experts in the law, that they should be aware of the fact that it was unlawful to pass judgment on any person supposedly violating the Mosaic law without first hearing the accused and their testimony regarding their charges. The Pharisees dismissively mock this Nicodemus and challenge him to search the scriptures to see if there is any mention of any prophet which shall come from Galilee. Of course, once again, the Pharisees were uninformed and believed that Jesus was born in Galilee and was thus disqualified from being the Messiah, since according to Micah chapter 5 verse 2, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Had the Pharisees done their homework better, they would have realized that Jesus was in fact born in Bethlehem, but later relocated to Galilee, which was his boyhood home. Once the Pharisees asked this question and Nicodemus was rebuked, the debate ended and those onlookers dispersed and went home without further incident. This concludes this episode. Please join me for episode 8. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Oh, oh, oh.